0: Was telling Eric this morning that it has become a bit of a cliché tradition for me to write my sermon about five times. And yet the day before. I'm to preach, tear it up, and write it all over again. So if I'm a little bleary-eyed today, it's because this was completed about 3 in the morning, and uh, I'm a little (laughs) bleary-eyed. Before I begin, I want to thank you, Greg, for covering for me last week. I was supposed to present this last week, which meant if I had, I probably would have gotten some sleep last night. <clears throat> That'll teach me. Uh, but I wasn't feeling well last week, and so at last minute, Craig uh, stepped in, uh, and I mean last minute. I think I called him about nine forty in the evening, uh, stepped in and, and uh, stood in my place last Sunday, and and I listened to a sermon earlier this week, and, and a beautiful sermon, brother. Uh, and a, but a, I appreciate uh, you doing that uh, because if not, I would have had to preach kind of. Thrown on the pulpit table, here. and it wouldn't have been a pretty thing. So you're really glad and thankful that Greg covered for me too. The options were not good. <laughs> All right. Um, if I have time uh, in conclusion today, and as David pointed out, that's not likely. Um, <laughs> Uh, I I, I might offer you a personal testimony as to why this text and particularly this topic that I'm preaching on today uh, was made so important to me. Uh, I've discovered that in preparing a sermon I am often taught and counseled and convicted by it myself. And this was no exception. Uh, That's part of the reason I had such a difficult time putting it to paper, is, is because in preaching on the promises of God, which is what I'll be preaching on today, I realized I wasn't fully believing and trusting in the promises of God. I was going to be preaching from a hypocritical platform, or at least a pro- platform in lacking in conviction. Thankfully, God has revealed that to me, and uh, I've had opportunity to confess that sin. And now today, hope I'm able to help you I'll see God's promises more clearly as well. I don't think that it's necessary for me to try to convince you of just how marvelous this Bible is. It's comprised of 66 books written by 44 authors across a period of about 1,400 years and covers not only about 4,000 years of human history but also the eternity of human future. As of 2016, the Bible, the complete Bible, Old and New Testaments, have been translated into over 630 languages. The New Testament, over 1,440, and select books of the Bible into at least another 1,000. The Bible is also still setting the, the pace as the world's best-selling book. And it doesn't show any inclinations of showing da- slowing down soon. According to a, 15, a 2015 report from the Barna Group, 88% of Americans said they have at least one copy of the Bible in the home, and with nearly a quarter having more than five. As well, 13% of those asked said they had even purchased a new Bible in the last year. They didn't come to my house, but (laughs) don't these people like Bibles? (laughs) But even with such incredible statistics under it, what really staggers the mind, what, what really sets it apart, is what the Bible says about itself. It makes some extraordinary claims. 2 Timothy 3.16 says of the Bible that all Scripture, every word, every dot, and every tittle, was breathed out by God. God inspired the minds and hearts of men to convey His truth as they were led by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, Even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And just as I don't need to convince you of the Bible's marble, I don't need to convince you that what the Bible says of itself is true. At least I don't if you're a Christian. And if you count yourself as a believer, you do so because you have believed. And what you have believed is the truth within this amazing book. You have believed the words that God has poured out by His Spirit. So it's no surprise that when we make reference to the Bible, we might define and esteem it as God's revealed will in relationship to men. Or maybe we declare it as the story and history of creation, the fall, and God's restoration work. Or even the story of God's special grace in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And any one of those descriptors would be right. Every one of those descriptors would be right. And yet, as exciting as it is to see today's church enjoying a return to its true roots and rapidly growing in an appreciation for the deeper things of God and His Word all of that a very, very good thing, I do have a concern. And I can't help but wonder if in our scholarly march toward greater and deeper biblical understanding, if we aren't risking leaving something vital in the dust behind us. I wonder if our firmer grasp of theological complexities, hasn't also caused us to loosen with the other hand our grip on a simpler but no less important truth. I wonder how many Christians today still consider for the Bible with all its deep and solemn truths as a book that remains from its first pages to its very last, a book of God's promises to God's people. As always, it is wise and it is right that the preaching be preceded by prayer. Would you please bow your heads with me now? Mighty God in heaven, Lord, may your name be lifted and exalted and glorified in all that is done here this day. May the fame and the glory of Christ be central in every word that is spoken and in every heart that hears. Lord God, I pray that you would be with me today, that you would strengthen me in body and spirit as I deliver this sermon Father, I pray that you would make its preaching effectual and that you would use it for your glory and your good and the good of your people. I pray, Father, that you would lift humble words and do mighty works with them by the power of your great Spirit. Father, now as I take on the audacious task of presenting your word. Through mere mortal lips, I ask you to bless us each in the name of Christ Jesus, your great and holy son. Amen. Amen. By count, there are three hundred, or excuse me, three thousand five hundred and seventy three promises in the Bible. Now, I haven't any idea if that's right, (laughs) and I have no idea who counted them. I'm pretty sure it wasn't a Puritan, expecting that if it was, we would have a 3,573-volume set (laughs) of studies or sermons on each and every promise. Get me wrong. I love the Puritans, but they didn't miss a beat. (laughs) They left no stone unturned. But listen, a sure count of every promise in the Bible isn't really what's important. What is important to know and what is important to remember is that the promises in this book aren't just promises. They are God's promises. It's important to know and remember that because there is a distinct and definite difference between the promises of men and the promises of God. And it will be very helpful for us to see that difference. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 declares that in the beginning... God created all mankind in His image. Well, we know that John 24, teaching that God is spirit, that doesn't mean that we were created in the physical image of God. We don't believe like some cults do that God was once a man and elevated to a God and that we as men will someday do the same. God is spirit. And so we know that we don't reflect his physical image, because he hasn't any physical image. Rather, God created us to uniquely reflect aspects of his beauty, his character, and his attributes. We are spiritual. Even those people who are not Christians have spiritual beliefs. They are outside the realm of our doctrine. But whether they believe in reincarnation, or whether they believe in false gods, whether they worship trees and rocks, we were created to be a spiritual being. And we are creative. We paint, we write, we create, we tell stories, and we communicate. All of God's kingdom, even with the animal kingdom, communicates. They chirp, they whinny, they bark. But not one of them brings in a loved one and communicates their hopes and dreams for their future. Not one of them conveys the deep love that they have for them. Not one of them tells their children bedtime stories. And we are relational. Look around you. We want to belong. We want fellowship. We thrive on it, and we crumble without it. One of the greatest penalties that you can impose upon a person is putting them into isolation. That's why solitary confinement is such a big deal in prisons. It's not just for safety, it's punitive. It's a terrible thing. Do we all enjoy some some private time? Yeah. But we don't want that to be our forever time. And we love and we're self-aware and we have an understanding of justice and grace and mercy. All these things reflect God. But we're also fallen sinners. And because we are, every aspect of our image-bearing has been defiled and corrupted. The image of God we now reflect is a tarnished and perversely distorted one. Evidence of that shows in the promises we make. And even more so, it shows in the promises we break. It's not that we don't understand the inherent value of promise. We certainly do. If we didn't, we wouldn't endure the pain of someone breaking a promise to us. And if you don't think that someone feels betrayed when someone breaks a promise to them, make and break a promise to take a six-year-old to Disneyland. The betrayal you see is at the nuclear level. (laughs) Because it's true, even kids know the value of a promise. When I was young, If you were sincere about a promise, you sealed it with a solemn pledge. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. That's just gross. (laughs) And I'm not sure it's that bad if you're already dead poking needles. Nonetheless... It still broke promises, and I never saw a dead one with a needle in his eye. We knew the value, we just didn't keep our promises then either. And maybe you've heard some old guy, I'm getting to be that, who says, you know, back in the good old days, a man's word was his pledge. A handshake was enough. I know it's a crock because today adults seal their promises with the pledge of a contract. Part of that's because we're afraid of getting needles in our eye. <laughs> but listen, whether it's for a home or a car or anything else, I, I just bought a truck. And, the, and when you buy a truck, dealerships still have to use dot matrix printers because they're the only ones that will handle the six-foot-long paper that that contract's printed on. It might not be six, but maybe just five. (laughs) I don't want to exaggerate. But listen, those contracts with all of their details and clauses, what we call the, lovingly call the fine print, A contract is each party's contingency against the expectation of the other party's lack of integrity. We write contracts because we expect the other person to be a liar. And ultimate. Whether it's selfishly intentional, which means that it's just beneficial to you to break the promise, which, by the way, is just lying. Or if it's due to matters outside of our control, each of us have known the sting of broken promise, and each of us have hurt others with our broken promises to them. And get this. There is a biblical reason for that. Scripture speaks to that. And it is this. As created beings, we haven't either the authority or the power to guarantee our promises. In speaking to that, and even as it acknowledges what may be our good intention... Scripture warns us against being presumptive with either our thoughts or our words. Matthew 5:33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And this is Jesus clarifying the spiritual aspect of the law. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. James 4, 13 through 15 confirms that saying, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. We haven't the authority nor the power to guarantee our promises. Now, just as men's promises aren't like God's promises, God's promises aren't like men's. Because the Bible assures us that there is one who does have the authority, who does have the power to make promises that are sure and certain. There is one who an infinite righteousness and holiness will not, because he cannot, break a promise. There is one whose promises never fail. Even in presenting the covenantal dialogue between God and men, the Bible uses language that's absolute. Emphatic phrasing such as, I will do this. that and when I do this or that only God can do that only God can say that and the only time condition is attached to God's promises is when the manner in which his promise is kept is determined by our obedience toward him In those biblical instances, His promises, though no less certain, are provided to us in an if-then scenario. To say that simply, God's promises to men often include a duality, conveying both a positive and a negative promise which aspect of the promise God fulfills being determined by our obedience or disobedience. Deuteronomy eleven twenty six through 28, words preceding our sermon text are a clear example of that. There God says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today, to go after other gods that you have not known. Now I want to, before going on, I want to offer you two reasons. Or why this text was chosen today. One, I believe it paints a composite portrait of God's fulfillment of the promises leading up to it. And as well, it shows us again that pru- principle of duality in God's promises. And secondly, though any number of wonderful scriptures could have been chosen to preach on God's promises... There's an old adage that says, you leave the dance with the one that brought you. It was in this text that I first saw need for this sermon, and it was through this text that I saw the truth I needed to see myself. So, lest you think it was only included as a means of filling the white space on the front of your bulletins, Let's re-familiarize ourselves with it and read it one more time. Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 8. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, You shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you, so that you shall dispossess them, and Joshua will go over at your head, as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, And you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Moses began speaking these words that he's now continuing to speak way back in Deuteronomy 1. From there to here, it has been one long dialogue. Moses' last dialogue with the people of God as their leader. And there in the beginning, he's recalling a time 40 years prior when another group of Israelites had stood before him, receiving the same commands and promises that God's giving to them now. Deuteronomy 1, 20 through 21 says, And Moses is recalling what he said to those Israelites. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Words very similar to what he's speaking to the latest group. And having a biblical account of both events, we know that where the Israelites to whom he's now speaking will cross the Jordan and will take possession of the land of Canaan, that ancestral group did not. And you know the story. It's found in Numbers, chapters 13 through 14. God commanded Moses to select 12 leaders from the tribes of Israel. And he sent them into the land of Canaan to spy it out at God's order. And they were there for 40 days. And then returning to camp, bowed down by the weight of the abundance of the land's provisions, they said this, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flowed with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. That fruit was a single cluster of grapes that the Bible says they had to carry between two men. I like grapes. I've never seen grapes that two men needed to carry. And that's just exactly what God had promised would await them way back in Exodus 3. Yet even so, with this tangible evidence of the land's promised abundance, rather than trusting and obeying God, they placed their trust in what they could see. And the only thing they could see were the obstacles and dangers before them. and to ensure that everyone else saw things just as fretfully as they did, the Bible says they delivered a bad report. They told the people that the only thing they'd spied out were fortified cities filled with powerful giants. And then again, as Israel grumbles about One more time, as God has only brought them out of Egypt to watch them suffer and die here in the desert, Joshua and Caleb, the two dissenting voices out of the twelve, the two that had said, no, listen, there's good land there, land that God has given it. Come on, let's go get it. They tried to encourage Israel, reminding them of God's promises. And in response, the people were going to stone them. That is, until God intervenes, appearing in his glory at the tent of meeting. God, though, is not pleased. God tells Moses, listen. I don't know how long I can put up with this, people. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to dispossess them. And I'm going to make a greater nation from you. Now listen, Moses is in a good position here to take advantage of this. God's already told him he's not crossing. Seems like a loophole. Moses has been on the bad side of their grumbling and complaining and accusations himself on numerous occasions. What an opportunity to be shed of them. But Moses loves his people. And Moses knows that God would be most glorified Not in dispossessing them, but in keeping his promise to them. And so Moses pleads in prayer for them. And God in his love and in his mercy, both for Moses and for them, relents. But he doesn't forget. He says, okay, I will keep my promise to my people but it won't be kept to this people. This people are returning to the wilderness. And they will return there for a year for each day that they had opportunity to see in that land they spied out that my promises were true. And because they'd spied out the land for 40 days, they were exiled to the wilderness for 40 years with a stipulation. The stipulation being that not one of them who had rebelled and rejected God's promises would ever step foot here again. They would all die in that wilderness except Joshua and except Caleb, the two dissenting voices. And you know what? Those people said, hey, it's okay, you're right, we're sorry, our bad. Let's go get it. And Moses said, what are you doing? Why do you further rebel against God? You will not conquer. And so the Bible says they went anyway leaving Moses and the ark behind. They were very soon back. They were back in defeat with their tails tucked between the legs and packing up for a 40-year journey. And God fulfilled his promise, and not one of them returned. And with that sad promise fulfilled, Moses, now 120 years old, after serving God and leading Israel for more than 40 years, acknowledging that he will not cross with them, transfers his ambassadorship and his authority to Joshua and prepares God's people for their long-anticipated crossing and entry into Canaan. And he does that with a declaration of God's promises. The first thing he promises them is the promise of God's presence. The Lord your God will go with and before you. Verses 3, 6, and 8. God was no longer going to go before them as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. They had reached the promised land. God had taken them and delivered them to the point where they would cross over. And in Joshua, we see that as soon as they ate of the fruit of the land, the manna stopped coming. And just as the manna was no longer needed, here now, the pillar is no longer needed. We see it... Its last appearance, or at least its last recorded appearance, in Deuteronomy thirty-one, fifteen. But God is no less going before them; His presence will no less be beside them and ahead of them, purposing what He promised way back to Abraham. The conquest and the possession of the land of Canaan. The Bible even calls it the promised land. Moses also delivered to them the promise of God's provision. Not only would God provide for them the abundance of the land, Not only would He provide them fertile fields to grow crops, not only would He provide them a place to raise their young and grow their families and He grow His nation and His people, but He would provide them victory over their every enemy. All of those obstacles that first group had seen, they were. They were formidable. They were fierce. They were warriors, but they weren't God. And so while the earthly battles are yet to come, Moses says, the Lord will destroy your enemies. Verses 3, 4, and 5. Because in the heavenly realm, In the time frame of eternity, every promised victory had already been won. And God promises through Moses the promise of his preservation. The Lord will not leave you nor forsake you. Could there be more encouraging words we could hear? You can tell me a lot of things that will get my blood up. You can tell me a lot of things that I can look forward to. But there's nothing you can tell me that brings me a greater peace, a greater comfort a greater inward strength than God, the creator of heaven and earth, the sovereign ruler of all that is, ever was, and ever will be, is never going to leave you nor forsake you. Now I got some bullets in my belt. that registers on my hope chart. If God is for me, the Scriptures say, who can be against me? The answer is no one and nothing. And so God commands the people and their leader to be strong, courageous, and without fear or dread. Now listen. This was the problem for the first group. And if we look at this rationally and realistically, that's ridiculous. We are going into face. Seasoned armies in fortified cities. And some of them are giants. Have no fear. Are you nuts? (laughs) And it would be nuts to say that. It would be ridiculous to say that. Were it not founded on God's promise? Were it not accompanied by God's presence? Were it not made sure by God's provision of victory? Remember the story of David and Goliath? His shaft was like a weaver's beam. Nine feet tall. That's a big old boy. Shaquille O'Neal has to stretch his neck for that one. And David says, hey, look. (laughs) You come to me with all of that. It's all right. I come to you in the name of the Lord. Didn't work out so well for the tall guy. (laughs) Well, here's the story. He was a couple feet short. But of course, we know that in, in the end, ultimately, even with the miraculous crossing and conquering of the land, the story doesn't end there. The Israelites' development as a nation was just beginning. And through Scripture, we've witnessed their roller coaster struggles with faith and obedience. In fact, a graphing of the repeated reversals of faithfulness and idolatry would likely resemble a seismograph of San Andreas on a really bad day. They did a lot of this. Faithful, not faithful. Faithful, not faithful. But before we move forward ourselves, I want us to remember that there is a contrast between those two groups of Israelites, and I want us to remember it, because each group had been in the same place, and each group had received the same commands and the same promises, and each group had the same opportunity to trust God and depend on those promises. one group turned against God trusting in themselves over him and in God's judgment that group was cast away into the wilderness never to say eyes on the promised land again the other group though facing the very same dangers and obstacles saw them in the light of God's faithful promises and did not hesitate to cross over the Jordan Where God established them as a mighty nation and raised them up as his own people. And here we are today. 3,500 years removed since that time that Israel walked on dry land. Miraculously through a, a flooded Jordan that God had parted like he had done to the Red Sea and their escape from Egypt and though it's been that far removed from us that occasion God's love for his chosen people has never changed and God still extends to His people the promises of His presence, the promises of His provision, and the promise of His preservation. What has changed is the covenant under which these promises are applied and fulfilled. God's people today are participants in the new covenant. And the promises of the New Covenant aren't fulfilled in the same physical ways that He filled His promises to Abraham and the nation of Israel. The Old Covenant required that God's people lived in strict obedience to the Mosaic Law. And because they were no less sinners than we are today, the law required them to make daily sacrifices to atone for those sins. But in Deuteronomy 29.4, when Moses was still speaking to Israel, knowing that they would fail in keeping God's covenant, he reassured them with God's promise that a time was coming when there would be a spiritual restoration. That spiritual restoration has now come. It's given as the new covenant and it's promised through Christ Jesus. Hebrews 8 6 through 8 assures us that the new covenant covenant is delivered in Jesus Christ and holds the better promise, with Jesus, Jesus mediating a covenant of inner transformation, willing obedience, intimate relationship with God, and the forgiveness of sins forever. Where the old covenant was written on stone, the new covenant will be written on hearts. Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's that transforming of our heart that's described in Ezekiel 36. that new covenant and what are the promises given through it? Here's how we don't enter into it. We don't enter into it through our righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 declares, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. And Romans 3.23 reminds that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 3.10 adds, none is righteous. No, not one. And we don't enter into the new covenant through our works. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Galatians 2.16 adds, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So if not by any inward good... And if not by any outward good that we can do, by what means are we to enter into the promises of God's new covenant? That question is answered full and well in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, Here's the bottom line. Because of man's sinful predicament, he is in desperate need of God's direct intervention. That intervention has already been provided by Jesus Christ, the mediator between sinful humanity and a righteous God. 1 Timothy 2 and 5. Because Jesus died through faith and only through faith, men can be declared justified and righteous. Romans 5.1 By faith alone a person is redeemed and set free from slavery. The purchase price of their freedom being Christ's own shed blood. 1 Peter 1.18-19 and, and even that faith is a gift from God. Salvation is a free gift from God, Romans six twenty three. And since it is a gift, there's absolutely nothing you or I can do to earn it. All you have to do is take the gift. John 1.12 But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But that brings us back to an earlier truth. The truth that in relationship to God's covenantal promises people today still fall into those same two groups. Those who upon hearing God's effectual word and recognizing their sinful desperation and their need for a savior joyfully surrender to his gracious calling and placing their newfound faith in Jesus, hold fast to His salvation promises. But there are still also those of the second group. Those who, though the word of God has been rightly declared to them, though they've heard the eternal wrath and judgment earned and due by their sin. Though they've heard the sweet testimony of God's freely offered grace and the rescuing gift of Christ's substitutionary death, he, the sinless, delivered to the cross for the sinner, will continue to turn away from God and will, according to God's sovereign will, remain deaf to his calling, blind to his mercy, And dead in their sins. For those who have. Or will. Respond to God in faith. Confessing and repenting of their sins. Surrendering to Jesus. The lordship of their lives. The promises of God. Are godly affections. New understanding of his word. The gift of grace. The peace of Christ. The removal of sin's wrath, freedom from guilt and enslavement to sin. The indwelling Holy Spirit, God's seal of salvation, restoration of fellowship with our merciful God, and entry into the fellowship of God's church. And that's just the promises that are ours while we're still in the flesh, our eternal promises. Include the non-existence of sin, sorrow, and tears. And eternally dwelling in the presence of our glorious God. In resurrected, eternal, and glorified bodies. I don't know about you, but as I get older, I'm really looking forward to that glorified body. Listen and have no doubt that there is duality in God's promises, and God will surely and sadly also fulfill His promises. Given to those dying outside of fellowship and relationship with his son. Someone has to pay the price of sin. And we can by faith accept the ransom and gift of grace offered through Jesus, purchased with his substitutionary death on Calvary's cross we can shun that gift, reject God's grace, and pay sin's cost with our own eternal suffering in hell. Listen now to God's dreadful promise in Scripture for those who reject Christ's gift of salvation. This comes from John 3.18 through 20 and 36. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And it is a terrible wrath. It is an eternal wrath. So let me conclude with this. Let me close with this. For those in Christ, it's true that in obeying God, Israel would have to face great and terrible foes. There really were giants in the land. But with their eyes fixed only on the giants, they couldn't see the omnipotently powerful God going with and before them. What giants are you facing today? Which giants are staring you down and calling you out? Which giants have you running back into camp trembling? What sort of seemingly impossible odds are against you? Christian. The Lord your God goes with you. The Lord your God goes before you. The Lord your God will never leave you nor forsake you. can't because you're promised to be his people forever in Christ. Jesus promised that all that God had given him he would never lose. Doesn't mean we won't face harsh realities in this life, doesn't mean we won't endure great pains in this life, doesn't mean we might not die miserable deaths in this life. But this life isn't eternal life, and we are promised that in Christ Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? J.I. Packer offers this bit of wisdom And the fact that it's wisdom is validated by the fact that it's J.I. Packer. (laughs) Optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God Himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth, on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. Briefly, I said if I had a moment, I would offer you my own testimony of why this sermon struck so close to home for me. Some of you may know the outskirts of the details, some of you may not, but it has for a number of weeks now, and then due to a number of reasons, kind of all impacting at once, uh, our home has been in turmoil. It has been a place that has been hostile and uninviting and pretty unpleasant to be in. We've all been tired and stressed and angry with one another. Not because we were angry with one another, per se, but because we were worn out and our guard was down. And when I was trying to write this sermon, in its conception, I was struggling. I couldn't put the right words and I couldn't find the the right meanings. And then I realized, I wasn't trusting in God. I had failed to remember that he, and he alone, is sovereign. I, like the Israelites, was trying to rush in and take a land under my own strength. Like them, I failed miserably. Peace is ebbing back into our home today. It's settling down. It's calming down. Love has replaced vitriol. Hugs have replaced hands out. Quiet has replaced screaming. Nothing's different except that we're trusting in God. Recognizing that just as I don't have the authority or power to make promises, I don't have the authority or power to change people. So, Christians, today, again, I don't know what you're facing, but whatever it is, Don't set your eyes there too long before you lift them up to God. Would you bow your heads as I close today in prayer? Father God, thank you for this opportunity to share the truths of your word, truths that you have taught to me through your word, and truths that I pray will help and comfort and bring peace to my brothers and sisters here today. Father, we are so grateful for the promises that you've given us in Christ. So grateful, Father, that they are sure and certain promises. And we are grateful, Lord God, for your presence your provision, and your preservation through the new covenant in Christ. Father, I ask that you would bless each of these, my churchmen and my brothers and my sisters, that you would do so for their good and for your glory. In the name of your Son, Jesus.